You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. On his 75th birthday, a reporter asked Winston Churchill if he was afraid of death. Churchill responded, I'm ready to meet my maker, but whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Churchill thought that was amusing. It isn't, because Churchill, for all his historical significance and his bluster and his quick wit, was just a man. But to stand before God Almighty in his capacity as the final judge, that is a great ordeal. Psalm 33 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. But like Churchill, Western culture is irreverent, isn't it? Our political elites are irreverent. They wrap themselves in the Christian flag whenever they need votes, but they don't seem to live Christian lives, do they? Our cultural elites celebrate blasphemy. Sacrilegious literature and art are hailed as culturally significant. Creators of this filth are avant-garde visionaries. Comedians and entertainers make a living by mocking God and his Christ and his word and his people. Even many Christian elites in our society are irreverent. They trade on the name of Christ to make a quick buck and to build vast empires of self-promotion rather than preaching the gospel the Lord commanded them to preach. Friends, the fear of the Lord is in short supply in our society. Instead, our culture is filled with the arrogance of man. But today we're going to see that the arrogance of man is short-lived and empty. And the path of arrogance is the path that leads to the fearful judgment of Almighty God. Today, my counsel to you is to humble yourself and to seek refuge in Jesus Christ because the judgment of the Lord is coming. It is coming upon the mighty, upon the elite, and upon every arrogant person who will not humble himself before the Lord. And that's what we see today as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Today we'll be in Daniel chapter 5. And today we're going to see what arrogance looks like and where arrogance leads. We're going to see that across four points. First, we'll see that the arrogant blaspheme God. Second, that the arrogant suppress the truth about who we are and where we're going. Third, we'll see that the arrogant ignore warnings that they know are true. And fourth, we'll see that Almighty God exalts the humble, but he destroys the arrogant begin with our first point which is that the arrogant blaspheme God book of Daniel chapter 5 verse 1 and we read King Belshazzar and we'll stop there now across the first four chapters of this book we spent a lot of time in the halls of power in the ancient Babylonian Empire and we spent a lot of time with Nebuchadnezzar the greatest king of the Babylonian Empire But as we begin chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar is gone because he died in 562 B.C. after reigning for 43 years. And the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign was the end of Babylon's glory. Back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a prophetic dream. And he saw a massive statue in this dream comprised of many different metals with each metallic section pointing to a different era of world history. And Daniel, God's prophet, interpreted this dream by declaring that the head of gold on this statue pointed to Nebuchadnezzar personally. You, O king, you are the head of gold, Daniel said in chapter 2. All the other sections on this statue referred to different kingdoms, but the head of gold was just King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's exactly what we see in the historical record. After Nebuchadnezzar was gone, his Babylonian successors were nothing to write home about. Nebuchadnezzar was initially succeeded by his son, Amal Marduk, who is called in 2 Kings chapter 25, Evel Merodach, 
based on the different way that you would pronounce this term in Hebrew versus Aramaic. Uh, but this man, Amal Marduk, uh, he reigned only two brief years. And then he was overthrown and murdered by a fellow named Nergal Isher, who was one of his generals. He's actually named in Jeremiah 39.3 as one of the generals of Nebuchadnezzar. And this Nergal Isher, uh, who had deposed Nebuchadnezzar's son, was an ambitious warrior king, but his reign was also brief. He was dead inside of four years. And Nergal Isher was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who reigned only two months before he was overthrown and murdered by a man named Nabonidus. As you can tell, Babylon did not practice the peaceful transition of power. And it is with Nabonidus that we get the background to today's passage. Nabonidus was a religious fanatic, but he was not devoted to the idols of Babylon. Instead, he was devoted to a moon god named Sin. What a name, right? Sin. And Nabonidus' devotion to Sin infuriated the priests of Babylon so much so that uh, King Nabonidus left the city for 10 years. And during those 10 years, one ancient record states that he entrusted the kingship to Belshazzar, his son. So Belshazzar reigned alongside his father at the same time. Nabonidus was the main king and Belshazzar was the junior king. And that's the background to verse 1. Now it's worth noting that until the 1850s, no records had ever been found naming Belshazzar other than the book of Daniel and some Jewish writings dependent on the book of Daniel. And so for a long time, the skeptics and critics of the Bible said, ah, oh, Belshazzar, he's not a real person, the Bible made him up. But over the last 150 years, archeological expeditions have found numerous Babylonian documents referencing Belshazzar. So once again, the Bible is vindicated on a matter of history. Friends, we can trust our Bibles as historically reliable and accurate. And as we pick up, it is Belshazzar who is reigning in Babylon. The year is 539 BC. And in fact, based on what happens in this chapter, we know that this chapter describes the events that took place on October the 12th, 539 BC. Well, what happened on that day? Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Well, what's this about? A threat has arisen against Babylon. A powerful army from the east has invaded Babylonian territory, and Belshazzar is in terrible trouble. This eastern army is comprised of an alliance of two powerful Iranian tribes, the Persians and the Medes. And this army is led by the Persian king, Cyrus. And Cyrus has enjoyed a lot of success in his war with Babylon. In fact, a number of Babylonian citizens have begun to defect to the Persian side. They started supporting Cyrus, believing that the gods of Babylon, whom King Nabonidus had forsaken, now supported the Persians. In fact, just two days prior to this feast, the Persian army had seized one of the major suburbs of Babylon, only 45 miles away from the city, and they took it without a fight. Things are looking pretty bleak for Belshazzar. He's got to stop the bleeding. He needs to keep the support of the elites of his city. He needs to get some men to mount an energetic defense. And so he holds this feast to motivate the elites of Babylon. And at this feast, Belshazzar starts drinking wine and he gets drunk. Verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar throws a raucous party. There's wine, there are women, the king's wives and his harem and doubtless other women. There is wickedness. And in the midst of this depravity, Belshazzar calls for some objects to be brought forth to the party. 
objects which had been taken from Jerusalem 66 years earlier by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, before we get into talking about these objects, I want to point out that the text calls Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father. And some people say, well, see, this is evidence we can't trust the Bible because we know that Belshazzar's father was Nabonidus, not Nebuchadnezzar. But I would tell you that this phrase, father, is not speaking of immediate biological descent. Although we will see in a moment that Nebuchadnezzar was probably Belshazzar's maternal grandfather. But the idea here really is that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's great predecessor on the throne. Uh, in the same way that in our country we talk about George Washington being the father of our nation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was certainly the father of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And so that's why Belshazzar is uh, referred to here as Nebuchadnezzar's uh, son or, or child, not because of direct biological descent, but because Nebuchadnezzar was his great predecessor. And at the beginning of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem. We read about this back in Daniel chapter 1. And the Jews paid Nebuchadnezzar to leave them alone. They gave Nebuchadnezzar some gold and silver objects from the temple of the Lord as a bribe. And they gave him some captives, the best and brightest of Judah, including Daniel and his friends. And the gold and silver objects included the items which are at the center of this chapter. Gold and silver goblets and plateware, which were consecrated as holy unto the Lord, which the priests used as they ate the sacrificial meat, or as they offered drink offerings, or in other ceremonies. And it is these most holy objects which Belshazzar wants to party with. He fills them with wine, and he gets drunk from them, as do his partygoers. And then he uses these holy vessels to toast some idols. And they say, well, why are there idols at this feast? Belshazzar knows that his father's religious oddity has become a liability to his throne. It's losing the support of his people. Belshazzar has to show himself a true Babylonian and a supporter of the idols of Babylon. And so he has the idols of Babylon at this party, and he uses the vessels of the Lord to worship these false gods. Now, this is a shocking act of blasphemy because these idols are nothings. They're not gods. They're inanimate objects that don't live or speak. And if they have any power behind them at all, it's demonic power. But Belshazzar uses the holy and consecrated objects dedicated to the, the living God to worship these idols. That should appall us, friends. But understand that this would have been seen as arrogant and blasphemous even by the pagans present in that room. You know, in our society, people mock religion. They certainly mock other people's religions. But in the ancient world, people didn't mock the gods ordinarily, their own or anybody else's. Because polytheists usually believed not only in the reality of their own gods, but in the reality of other people's gods. And so they didn't want to say anything about any god for fear of angering that god. So I want you to understand that what Belshazzar does here is not simply an act of unbelief. I don't believe in the God of Israel, so I can use his goblets without consequence. That's not what's going on. The pagans in this room would have understood this as a contemptuous and a provocative act, inciting and challenging the God of Israel. And that was precisely Belshazzar's point. Belshazzar wants his partygoers to think the gods of Babylon are greater than the God of Israel. And the gods of Babylon are strong enough to maybe even beat the Persians. But worse than all of this, we'll see in just a minute, Belshazzar knew that the Lord was real, that the God of Israel is not some defeated tribal idol. Belshazzar knew that his great predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had confessed in chapter 4 that this Lord uh, worshipped in Israel is the Most High God. He knew that the Lord had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar says to God, you won't humble me, but I will humble you. And so he devotes the Lord's items to the worship of these idols, and he personally shows contempt for the living God. And friends, this contempt is shared by many people in our world today, especially people who have power and wealth and arrogance. Arrogant people still exalt themselves at the expense of the Lord. It happens in industry. You've probably heard the, the famous words spoken at the launch of the Titanic, not even God himself could sink this ship. How'd that work out? Sometimes business magnates think they are so secure and powerful that they are like gods. 
doesn't usually work out well for them. It happens in sports. A few years ago, Swedish soccer player Zlatan Ibrahimovic gave an interview in which he claimed to be gone. What blasphemy, because he plays a game with the ball. Happens in entertainment. Before his alleged conversion, Kanye West put out an album in which he claimed to be God. He still goes by the nickname Jesus. What blasphemy. Happens in politics. In recent years, we've heard a number of politicians scoff at the idea that there is value in prayer or that miracles can happen. These things are a joke to them. They openly challenge the reality and the power of God. It's blasphemous. Other politicians use holy things that rightly belong to the Lord as props intended to score points at the polls. Earlier this year, we had politicians holding up the Bible in photo ops to try and score points. Sometimes politicians twist the scripture. Earlier this campaign season, one candidate for high office gave a speech in which he quoted Hebrews chapter 12, which says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to... But then this candidate did not finish the sentence as the Bible does. The Bible says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. But that's not what the candidate said. He said, looking to old glory, looking to the American flag, that's blasphemy. He took a quote that points to Jesus and he diverted it to point to his own political agenda. And that's basically what Belshazzar is doing here, using things that belong to the Lord in service of something else. Friends, this open defiance of God and the misuse of the things of God and the willingness to challenge God and people claiming to be God. The other day I was driving and I saw a BMW and the, the license plate on the back of it said, BMW is God. All of this talk denigrating the reality of God is irreverent. And it is blasphemous. And, and it's, it's in continuity with the first sin way back in the garden. From the beginning, people have lifted up their hearts against the Lord, wanting to take his place. And it continues today. Maybe it continues in our midst. We think that we are mighty, that we are secure, that we can do whatever we want, free from God's power and review. And friends, God is not mocked. Second Peter 3 says, Scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? But they deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Friends, know this. The arrogant and the blasphemous will be held to account. Proverbs 19, 29 says, condemnation is ready for scoffers. And that's what we see now in our second point which is that arrogance suppresses the truth about who we are and where we're going. Belshazzar and his partygoers have blasphemed the Lord in the midst of their drunkenness and their lust and their self-indulgence. But in a moment, it all comes crashing down. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. I want you to picture it. There's a massive room. Archaeologists have probably found this room covered in white plaster, just what we find described here. And in this room, the party's going on, and Belshazzar blasphemes, and in an instant, God responds. A hand appears on the opposite wall, and everything would have stopped dead in its tracks. People would have been shrieking as this mysterious hand began to write on the white wall. Verse 5 says, And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. When Belshazzar sees this, his boasting stops, and he is seized by terror. The color rushes from his face. We read that his limbs gave way. Literally, in Aramaic, this says the joints of his loins were loosened. He probably emptied his bladder on the spot. That's probably what this means. Belshazzar's arrogance in an instant turns to terror and humiliation. Why? Because his arrogance is a facade. A facade designed to fool others and to fool himself. See, arrogance is a tool that people use to suppress the truth. It is a lie designed to distract people from the reality that we are wicked and sinful, that we are mortal, and that there is a God in heaven who will hold us to account. 
Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Every person in this world stands without an excuse before God. Nature teaches us enough about God so that we're all on notice. The existence of anything rather than nothing tells us there is an almighty creator. The existence of order rather than chaos, of rational laws of physics and chemistry, tell us there is an omniscient designer. The existence of a clearly definable good and evil tell us there is a moral lawgiver. All of these things combined tell us there is a righteous avenger. All of us are unnoticed, friends. God exists and he will call us to account. And in his heart, Belshazzar knew this, but he suppressed what he knew. And so he put on this facade instead of facing reality, pretending to be mighty enough to resist the Lord. In the same way, we live in a society today that suppresses the truth, that tries to forget we try to distract ourselves from the reality of sin and our mortality and the reality of final judgment. We distract ourselves with our jobs or our families or our free time. We busy our minds to avoid thinking about ultimate matters. Maybe like Belshazzar, we obliterate our minds with alcohol or with drugs. We distract ourselves with lust or greed or ambition or some other self-indulgence. We choose to believe lies absurd fairy tales about existence spontaneously arising from nothingness or life spontaneously arising from non-life. Anything to make ourselves feel better and tell ourselves, God's not real. You can get away with it all because we don't want to face him. You know, there are billionaires throwing their fortunes away at this idea we can download our brains into cyberspace and escape death. And folly, people don't want to face the truth. We want to run from it. But friends, in the end, a reality which is denied is still a reality. And we are mortal. And there is a reckoning that awaits. And there is a God in heaven who will hold us to account. And one of the things you do as a pastor is you speak at funerals. And it's a reality check when you stand over a grave. It's a hole in the ground. And you look down and you think, man, this is where we're all headed. It doesn't matter who we are. If we're the most powerful person on earth or if we're super poor, if we're long-lived or short-lived, if we're healthy or sick, all of us, this is our common inheritance, the grave. All of us will die. And Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. And while people want to run from this truth, all of our distractions are just a veneer. Wallpaper, which in an instant can be peeled away, leaving only this stark truth. And that's what happens to Belshazzar here. God pulls away the veneer and gives him a reality check. You're not ultimate Belshazzar. You're being held to account. And he can't handle it. And the same sort of thing happens today, doesn't it? People who want to forget these realities come face to face with them. They lose a loved one or they get a bad diagnosis and the veneer is pulled away and they realize everything is not going to continue for me as it always has. And usually when people see that, their response is fear and despair. And we've seen that this year, haven't we? As, as things have gone downhill, as there's been a pandemic and all of the civil turmoil in our society, what do we see? Denial. People suppressing the truth. I don't want to believe it, so I won't. I've seen fear and despair and misery. The suicide rate is through the roof. So is the divorce rate. People lash out. Domestic abuse is up. Friends, people cannot handle it when God strips away the facade and reminds us that we are just dust and we owe him an accounting. But that is the truth. And no amount of running, hiding, or denying it will stave it off. And in a moment, God pulls away Belshazzar's facade and leaves him in terror. So what does he do? Verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. As Nebuchadnezzar had done in the past, Belshazzar calls for the magicians and the occult practitioners of his court to help him in his terror. He sees something supernatural has happened, and he wants to respond with a supernatural response. 
Verse 7, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. In the ancient world, people feared curses. But it was thought if you could read whatever the curse was, you might be able to counter it. And so he wants his magicians to read and interpret whatever this hand has written to counteract it. Now, why Belshazzar couldn't read it for himself, we don't know. Maybe he was illiterate. Maybe it was in an unfamiliar alphabet. Maybe it was just supernaturally shrouded by God. We, we don't know. But he promises his wise men, if you read it, I'll give you a fabulous gift. You'll wear purple. You'll become royalty. I'll give you a gold chain. That's a symbol of high office. And he would become the third ruler, the third king in the kingdom, alongside Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. God frustrated these wise men. They could not read or interpret what had been written. Their magical power was petty. It was nothing compared to the might of the Lord, and they could not turn back what God had decreed. And so Belshazzar remained in terror. And friends, we need to know that nothing in this world, no knowledge, no power, no wisdom, no authority, and no money can deliver us from the destiny that the Lord has decreed, which is death and judgment. Belshazzar found no relief from his magic users or his idols, just as our idols and our distractions cannot deliver us. We will stand before God for evaluation. And if we're not prepared, friends, then... One day, when, when we come face to face with the Lord, we will find ourselves in terror as Belshazzar is here. We must not go through this life avoiding ultimate spiritual realities. We must face the fact that one day we will face God. And that leads us now to our third point, which is that arrogance ignores warnings like these. In the midst of this chaos, something happens. Verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. Now, verse 3 said that Belshazzar's wives were already at this banquet, indulging in the revelry. So who is this queen? Well, based on this woman's bold approach and bold counsel, most commentators think this is the, queen's, uh, the queen mother. Well, who was Belshazzar's mother? The Bible doesn't tell us, but one ancient historian wrote that Nabonidus took the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar as his wife. So that would make Belshazzar's mom Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And that would make sense. Because the woman who speaks in verse 10 knows a lot about how things worked back when Nebuchadnezzar was king. Verse 10. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The queen says to Belshazzar, don't be afraid. There is a man who can help you. And she points back to what we've seen in the first four chapters of this book. That when Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne and he faced difficult supernatural conundrums, he would rely on Daniel. And he had made Daniel the chief over the wise men in his kingdom because Daniel could so sort these sorts of matters out. Matters like the writing on the wall. Because Daniel was different than the wise men. She explains this using the exact language Nebuchadnezzar used in chapter 4, verse 8, that he had the spirit of the holy gods. Now, this is a pagan attempt to explain the truth, that Daniel had a real connection to an authentic divine power. Of course, polytheists like this didn't get the idea that there was only one God and that his holy spirit indwelt Daniel. But the queen mother tries to explain what she knows as well as she can to the king. And so Belshazzar summons Daniel. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. Now we said this passage takes place in 539 BC, 66 years after uh, Nebuchadnezzar first took Daniel captive. So Daniel would be about 80 years old at this point. He's no longer the governor of Babylon. 
He's no longer the chief of the wise men. He has faded into obscurity in the 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar's death. But God is not done with Daniel. Old age is not simply a time to rest on your laurels. There is still work to be done. And we know that because God puts this work now before Daniel. Time to solve another conundrum. Verse 13. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Belshazzar's got his composure back a little bit, and he returns to his arrogance. He looks and he says, You're Daniel? I just see an old exile, a slave. I have heard about you. The emphasis is on the word I. I have heard you have the spirit of the gods. And note, he doesn't call his idols the holy gods, as the queen mother had done, or Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. This man has no respect for the Lord, for Daniel, for his own idols, and even for his own wise men. Verse 15, he says, Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar says to Daniel, Take a crack at this problem, and if you succeed, I'll give you the reward I promised my wise men. But now Daniel speaks. And as he speaks, he has a very different set of values than Belshazzar does. Belshazzar's very into himself. Here's who I am. Here's what I've heard. Here's what I offer. But Daniel says in verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards to another. Back in chapters 2 and 4, when Daniel spoke with Nebuchadnezzar, he spoke very respectfully because he respected Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel doesn't seem too impressed with Belshazzar, and he speaks very plainly to this wicked man. And he's not interested in these rewards. For one reason, Daniel probably knows these rewards won't last for very long. Verse 17, he says, Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel is God's man. He is there to represent the Lord who has given this message to the king. He's not there for rewards or for profit. Rather, he just wants to fulfill the task God has given him. But he doesn't just read the writing. Daniel gives a speech first. Verse 18. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Daniel points Belshazzar to the past, to Nebuchadnezzar, the most glorious of earthly kings. Because God invested a unique power and authority in Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says. Verse 19. And because of the greatness that God gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a blank check for power. Because Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument of judgment, not just upon rebellious Israel, but upon all the sinful nations of the ancient Near East. God empowered Nebuchadnezzar to defeat and subjugate whomever he wanted. But despite giving him this power, verse 20, Daniel says, But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel summarizes the events of chapter 4. As great as Nebuchadnezzar was, he did not have the right to arrogance. God judged him for holding pride in his heart. You'll remember the specific expression of that pride in chapter 4 was that he looked out over his beautiful capital city and congratulated himself on his many accomplishments. That probably doesn't sound like a lot of arrogance to us, but God judged Nebuchadnezzar for it. He humbled him. He caused him to live like an animal for years until Nebuchadnezzar learned that no matter how great he was as a king, he is just a man. He's not God. He's not in control. And he rules only as long as God lets him. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. But now the next sentence is probably the most important sentence in this entire chapter. 
Verse 22, Daniel says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. This restatement about the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar was not news to Belshazzar. He knew all of it. Babylonian records indicate that within three years of Nebuchadnezzar's death, Belshazzar held high office in the kingdom. In other words, this probably had happened during his adulthood. Belshazzar knew that Nebuchadnezzar had gone insane and been humbled by the Lord. In fact, remember, his mother was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, most likely. And if that's the case, you know this was talked about at home. Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar's out in the pasture again. There's no way he didn't hear about that. Belshazzar almost certainly had read the empire-wide decree that Nebuchadnezzar wrote praising God, which we saw in chapter 4. Belshazzar knew that the Lord worshipped by Israel is sovereign over all things. He knew that the Lord humbles the proud. He knew the Lord could remove him from the throne in an instant. And yet despite these warnings, Belshazzar refused to take them to heart. He refused to think it could really happen to him, maybe to somebody else, but not to him. And instead, Daniel says in verse 23, and the vessels of God's house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Belshazzar knew the Lord was sovereign. But instead of learning from Nebuchadnezzar's experience, and humbly honoring God, Belshazzar provocatively blasphemed the living God and challenged him. And let me ask you this. If Nebuchadnezzar, who had real glory and power, was brought low by God for simply harboring a proud thought, what is going to happen to Belshazzar, who does not have glory or power, but who is a poser, ruling over a crumbling empire, who didn't simply have a proud thought, but put on a blasphemous feast to provoke the Lord. What ruin is going to come for this man? Well, we'll find out in just a second. But I want to focus first on two ideas in these verses. The first is what we see at the end of verse 23. God is the one in whose hand is your breath. Did you know that? The Lord is sovereign, not just over the great affairs of this world. He is sovereign over your life, over every breath you take the lord holds your breath in his hand think about that for a minute god decides whether we live or die god decides whether we breathe or not maybe we should hold the god with that kind of power over us in a little bit higher esteem than we have how many of us go around saying oh my god not as the beginning of a prayer but as a vain exclamation how many of us invoke the name of jesus christ in the same way how often do we see Christians speaking or singing about Jesus as our buddy or our pal or our boyfriend? You know, in the New Testament, two of the books were written by Jesus' brothers, James and Jude. If anybody could have said, I'm familiar with Jesus, I'm close with Jesus, it was these two men. But you know how both of their books begin, James and Jude? They both begin by saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. These two men who were closest to Jesus both knew the truth, that Jesus is exalted and glorious. He is our Lord and Master to be reverenced. We are to hold him in the highest light, not to bring him down to our level. Friends, we must revere the Lord because he holds our life in his hands. And Daniel says he holds all your ways, your future, your destiny is in his hands. If you rightly honor this God who is in control of your life as you should, Daniel says to Belshazzar, you haven't, even though you knew about him. And despite knowing the truth and having been warned about the dangers of pride, Belshazzar didn't humble himself. He ignored the warnings he received. And that's the second application here. Are you like Belshazzar? You know it all. You've been in church a long time. You've heard a lot of sermons. You know a lot of theology. You know a lot of the right answers. But have you ever actually submitted yourself to Christ in humility? There's a difference between knowing true things about God and entrusting yourself to Jesus. Have you imagined that God doesn't mean what he says about your life? That these warnings about sin, death, and hell are meant for others but not for you? Friends, that's what arrogance does. It makes us forget warnings which we know to be true. That, friends, the warning that God is real and that we will face him in judgment is true for me and it is true for you. So we must not ignore these warnings. We must live like they're true because they are. 
Have you come to Christ? Have you repented and turned away from your sin and clung to Christ's deity, death, and resurrection as your only hope? Are there sins on your conscience that you need to deal with? Confess them and turn them over to Christ. Do not play games with God. His warnings are real and he will make good on every one of them if we do not heed them and humble ourselves. And that's what we see in our final point. Almighty God destroys the arrogant, but he exalts the humble. Having finished his speech, Daniel now reads the writing on the wall. Verse 24, he says, Then from God's presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is what he says to Belshazzar. He says, Almighty God, who controls your life, who controls your destiny, and whom you have blasphemed, has crashed your party to bring you this word. And, and now he reads what's on the wall. Now, to understand the writing on the wall, it helps to know a little bit about uh, Semitic languages like Aramaic and Hebrew, which are closely related. These languages in Daniel's time were written without vowels. They were just consonants. And these groups of consonants take on different meanings as you supply different patterns of vowels. So if you read these consonants with one pattern of vowels, they function as nouns. And if you read them with a different pattern of vowels, they function as verbs. Daniel initially reads these words as nouns. And as nouns, all of these words mean units of weight or currency. A mene was a very large unit of money. A tekel or a shekel uh, refers to a smaller quantity of money. And parson means half, probably a half shekel here, a tiny quantity of money. And so there's a pattern that values run from the very large to the very small. In our parlance, this would be like saying a $100 bill, a $100 bill, a $1 bill, and a penny. You might say, well, okay, well, what does this mean? Remember in Psalm 2, when the leaders of the world rise up against the Lord, the Lord laughs and holds them in derision. Well, here Belshazzar has lifted himself up against the Lord, and the Lord insults him back. Belshazzar thinks he's great, but God says to him, let's look at the pattern of Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar was pretty good. He was a mene. His son uh, was a chip off the old block. He didn't reign long, but, but perhaps the, he is the second mene. The man who deposed that dynasty wasn't much. He was just a tekel. But Belshazzar, you and your father, you're just both half tekels. You are meager indeed. You're two pennies. Your boasting far exceeds your station. But now Daniel gives another interpretation, and here he interprets these words as verbs. If you're one of those people who's really into grammar, these are all passive participles. In other words, these are verbs which show what God is doing to Belshazzar. First, the word mene as a verb means to count. And so Daniel says, verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has number, he has mene, the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. God has decreed that Belshazzar's rule will be limited. It will not continue. In Semitic languages like Aramaic and Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you double it. And so Belshazzar's rule here is certainly and emphatically coming to a crashing stop. Second, the word tekel as a verb means to weigh. And so Daniel says in verse 27, tekel, you have been weighed, tekel, in the balances and found wanting. God has evaluated Belshazzar, and Belshazzar has failed the test. He does not measure up to God's standard. And so now Daniel gives the third word. The root of the participle parson in verse 25 is parase. The verb means to break in half. And Daniel now pronounces the judgment. Verse 28, parase, your kingdom is divided, it is parased, and given to the Medes and the Persians. God has broken Belshazzar's rule. His kingdom has been taken from his hands. There's another bit of wordplay here. This last consonantal grouping, PRS, with a different pattern of vowels, is also the word for Persia. And so in this last word, not only do we learn that Belshazzar's rule is broken, we learn who will take the kingdom from him, the Persians. And so this is God's response to Belshazzar's blasphemy. Irrevocable condemnation. His days are up, he has failed God's judgment, and he will lose his kingdom to Persia. Not the sort of message Belshazzar wanted to hear, but old Daniel courageously tells this evil man the truth. And that's an act of faith, to courageously speak the truth to a powerful sinner. 
Daniel might have expected he would be killed for properly reading the writing on the wall, but that's not what happens. Instead, Belshazzar makes good on his promise to give Daniel the rewards he offered him. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel the captive becomes royalty. He becomes one of the three kings of the Babylonian Empire, at least for a few hours. More on that in a minute. But it's interesting to ask, why did Belshazzar honor Daniel after hearing this bad news? A lot of explanations have been put forward, but I'll give you two. First, from a human perspective, the king is drunk, embarrassed, and standing in front of the thousand most powerful people in his kingdom. He can't afford to look worse than he already does, so he has to make good on the promise he made to Daniel. But second, and more importantly, God is still in control, even over a terrible, depraved scene like Belshazzar's banquet. And the living God has decreed that he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. For decades, Daniel had lived as an exile far from home. And then for decades, he had been a faithful servant to an ungodly king. And then for decades, Daniel had fallen into obscurity. But all that time, he was still loyal to the Lord. He was ready to serve when God wanted to use him. He was God's humble servant. And now at the right time, God exalts Daniel. Now you might say, well, this isn't much of a reward for Daniel. Yes, he gets a high position, but it's in a rapidly collapsing empire. That's true. But when we pick up in chapter 6, we're going to see that Daniel still holds a position of immense authority when the Persians take over. And Daniel probably gets to hold that position because, however briefly, he was a major ruler over Babylon when the city fell. And so this reward lasts longer than you might think. God indeed exalts humble Daniel. But what of Belshazzar? Verse 30. That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. After the party ended, death came for Belshazzar. The ancient historians Herodotus and Xenophon record that Babylon fell in a single night to the Persian army while a feast was being celebrated. That's what we see here. Other records from the Babylonian and Persian sides tell us that Babylon fell without a battle. After this party, the Persians crept into the city, took control, and executed Belshazzar. He died that very night. The kingdom was taken from him and given to the Persians. Specifically, it was put into the hands of an underling of King Cyrus named Darius the Mede, who we will talk about next week. But the first thing I want you to see here is that chapter 5 is quite different than chapter 4. In chapter 4, we saw proud Nebuchadnezzar, and God gave him the grace of a warning. God gave him a year to repent. God judged him for seven years, but then God restored him to the throne. That is not what happened to Belshazzar. He had received the grace of a warning as a younger man when he saw Nebuchadnezzar fall into uh, humility, but he didn't learn from it. He blasphemed God, and within a few hours, he was dead. In these two accounts, we see the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Our sin does not merit God's kindness or patience. Those are graces from God, his unmerited favor. When we experience God's kindness and patience, we should be thankful because God doesn't owe us that. And sometimes God doesn't extend those graces. Sometimes God just executes his justice right after we sin. The justice of God can be fearsome. He was fearsome on proud Belshazzar. It was fearsome on proud Babylon. For weeks we've talked about the arrogance of Babylon. The nation who said in its heart, according to Isaiah 47, I am and there is no one besides me. The nation, according to the prophet Habakkuk, that once had been so mighty it was like they worshipped their own military power. Friends, we need to know that God judges nations. If you do the work in the Old Testament, you will discover the sin that God judges most in nations is pride. Babylon was arrogant. God allowed Babylon to be arrogant for a while, while he used them to accomplish his purpose in judging the various kingdoms of the ancient Near East. But now Babylon's time is up, and now God makes good on the many prophecies he has decreed concerning Babylon. Habakkuk chapter 2 said, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the nations shall plunder you. That happened. 
Jeremiah 25, 12, God says, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. God unleashed his fearsome wrath on Babylon, as he will to every proud nation. But friends, I want us to know that God doesn't just judge powerful people. He doesn't just judge proud nations. God will unleash his fearsome wrath upon us if we do not know Christ. Because the words of judgment that Daniel interpreted here are equally applicable to every person who has ever lived. Mene, mene, our days are number, friends. In Psalm 139, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, God has determined how long we will live before we were ever conceived, before we ever drew breath. Your time is fixed, and it isn't very long. James 4.14 says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Death comes for all of us. And after death comes judgment. And the Bible is very clear about what God's standard is. And I don't want you to hear this sermon, and particularly the phrase where Daniel says, you have been weighed in the balance, and take from that that God's standard is some sort of cosmic scale, weighing our good deeds versus our bad. That is not the standard. Jesus told us what God's standard is in Matthew 5. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard. And so the word to Cain is true of us. Against God's standard, all of us are found wanting. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have failed God's standard. None of us can withstand his judgment on our own merits. But like Belshazzar, all of us deserve the sentence which God prescribes for those who fall short. All of us are under the word of judgment, parase. All of us deserve to be smashed under the wrath of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death in the lake of fire. But there is a way of escape. Not the way of arrogance and blasphemy, but the way of humility. Jesus said this in Matthew 21. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is speaking of himself. He is the stone. And in the end, we either fall on him begging for mercy and he breaks us. He humbles us. Or in time, he will fall on us and he will dash us to pieces. Friends, repent of your sins and come to Christ. Trust Jesus, God the Son, who became a man, who died in your place for your sin. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed so that you don't have to be. And he has risen from the grave, victorious over sin and death. Trust Christ and live, or else the judgment of God will surely fall upon you, as it will fall upon this world and everyone in it who does not bow the knee to Jesus. Friends, we live in an irreverent society, but we serve an awesome God who is to be feared, who we must not trifle with. So let us forsake our arrogance, let us repent of our sin, and let us reverence this God rightly. For Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And let us walk humbly before this God, humbly in praise, humbly in prayer, humbly in obedience, and like Daniel, humbly to be obedient to speak the Lord's word to those who need to hear it. Friends, let us be humble. For Jesus said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted.